Well, on occasion, uh, when, I, when I speak, both now and the future, in, in my new role here at City Harvest Church, uh, Pete's going to be allowing me not always to be just one of the team members on a series, but once in a while be able to share things, really truths that have shaped my life and my view of Christianity and my, my view of New Testament ministry, my my, my view of New Testament life as, as a Bible teacher, and I want to be able to share that. And today's one of those occasions. I'm not going to get through this word completely, so it's a first of a, a part two series, and part two is going to be sometime in the future. And uh, we, we don't know when, but uh, hopefully that you'll say, Bob, can you come back and finish the second half of this? And I, and I, I, want, to, I want to talk to you today about the gift of being common. I know that sounds like a real oxymoron because it's contrary to our culture. Yeah, in a, in a culture that we seem to highlight and promote celebrity and success status and we, 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 we tend to exalt and promote constantly achievement and amassing wealth or how many likes did you get on your Instagram posts or how many followers do you have on, you know, Facebook or Instagram, and we start, you know, sizing up numbers, and, you know, pastors get together, and they're, they're talking about how many people are you running right now, and a, a, a wise Sioux Indian, born-again Sioux Indian, told me one time, you run cattle, you lead sheep. And uh, I'm calling common a, as a gift. Now, now, common, just in this basic definition here, means this. It means relating to a community like the common good. It means shared by two or more, like two countries share a common border, or occurring or seen frequently, frequently like common food, or widespread like common knowledge, or general like common name, like Bob. Your name is Bob. It's a very common name. When people call out to my name in a crowd, many people respond to that name. It's a common name. Or, or characterized by a lack of privilege or status, for instance, like the common man. You know, synonyms for this particular word, they're, they're equal to that as an adjective, ordinary, like an ordinary person, or a usual, it's the usual trend, or, or everyday people, okay? Just, it has this sense of just ordinary, just plain old you and me. As a noun, it would be like the mass, crowd. Here's a phrase, the rank and, and file. An antonym, which would be the opposite of this, would be extraordinary or rare, uncommon. You would, you would think that I would title a sermon, The Gift of Being Extraordinary, the, the Gift of Being Rare or Uncommon, because it seems to be so much more noble. But I'm talking about being common, being ordinary, being usual is a gift, and I will build on this idea. Or, as we look at it as a noun, it's the elite, the elect. Of course, we're all elected here. We're going to read a scripture here in the next few minutes about why God elects you and I. It's not a compliment. There's a reason why he does this. We're the, we, we, the, an antonym, the opposite of common would be the cream. You know, like cream rises on milk. It's the top level, or it's the best in, in superlatives. You know, in my study of the Bible, and I, I study the Bible like any other Bible teacher, trying to, trying to understand the very nature of God and his purpose and his 
what he's doing in the earth and how his ways are, and he brings about his plan. As I'm studying the Bible, the thing that I come across over and over and over again, it seems to me that God does not use the extraordinary, that God does not use the rare, he does not use the uncommon, he doesn't use the elite or the cream or the elect or the best. He tends to use common people like you and I. That's what he tends to use. And uh, you look at like, if we were looking for a candidate, let's just say Pastor Pete was not going to be the pastor of this church, and, and I'm got consumed in this new assignment that I got, and we're, we're looking for a pastor. I mean, what, if we looked at just the biblical candidates, you know, would we, would we accept them as being a candidate to be the pastor of this church? You know, let's, let's choose, for instance, let's choose Jacob. Well, he does a lot of things. He's great at manipulation. He knows how to prevail over people through deception. He's shrewd. We call it shrewd in our culture. He's shrewd. He just, God has to deal with him all the time to the place where now he walks with a limp. I mean, maybe Jacob may, may, may not be the guy. How about Moses? Well, Moses has all sorts of issues. His self-identity is horrible. He stutters. He's not confident. He, 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 then he gets to be kind of narcissistic when he faces pressure. He, he kind of he talks about, you know, must I bring water out of the rock for you? He tends to get angry at the people, and yet he loves the people. There's some emotional issues. How about David? Well, David has, you know, we look at King David as a man after God's own heart, but, but you know, David, David was kind of a psycho. I don't know if you realize that or not. <laughs> If you, if you look at like 1 Samuel 16, he wants to marry Michael, Saul's daughter. And of course, of course, Saul just wants to get David killed because he was jealous of him. And so he said, you know, I'm, I'm just going to be kind of R-rated here. He says, I want you to go out and I want you to, you can have my, my daughter, but the dowry is 100 foreskins of 100 dead Philistine soldiers, okay? At first, there's 100 dead guys he has to kill. Then he has to mess with their private parts and bring back their foreskin, okay? Kind of sick. What's even more sicker, David did 200. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, we, would we make him a candidate for the church? Yeah. <laughs> he can't even go into his office. He has all these Philistine foreskins hanging on the wall. <laughs> it's just, it's just, it's just not, the guy's just sick. He's just sick, you know. Well, how about Deborah? Well, she's a woman. Oh. Don't want to have a woman leading. Yet she judged Israel, the great prophetess of the Lord. Or how about, hey, how about, how about, uh, how about Peter? Well, you know, there's issues with Peter. I don't know if you guys recognized it in his, his, the recommendation letter he got from his former pastor, Jesus. But uh, he, he cut off the side of a guy's head. Jesus had to pick his ear off off the ground and put it back on the guy's head. I don't know if we really want him to be an elder in the church. Well, how about James and John? Well, they wanted to nuke a Samaritan village. They have issues. And of course, if you're not part of their elite clique, you can't be a part of what they're doing. So I don't know if that's really going to work. And we keep going on and on and on and on and on. We, we tend to not to find anybody who's qualified. How about Hosea? Well, I think the church would have a problem with his wife's occupation, but uh, it goes on and on and on. This is, this is what we deal with when we deal with the Bible. Our characters in the Bible don't line up with our standards today. 
And yet God used them to bring his revelation and the unfolding of his purpose and bring Jesus to, to us on the earth in his incarnation and his death, burial, and resurrection. And then, of course, the, the team that Jesus chose was a common team. Regular guys, nothing, nothing to write home about. It says in, in the book of Acts, I believe it's 4.13 or it's 5.13, my chapter could be off on this. It, it, you know, they looked at Peter and John and they perceived that they were unlearned men. Now, actually, if you were raised as a Jewish boy in that culture of that day, you probably had memorized the Pentateuch. So we need to kind of share that in context, okay? But they didn't have formal rabbinical training Okay, but they had training in the scripture. How would you like to have everybody in the church have memorized per them the first five books of the Bible? I think it's going to be a great program. We're going to start it next week. <laughs> All of you are going to memorize the first five books of the Bible, quoting every verse per them. Okay, Bob, I don't want to be a follower of Jesus anymore. I think that's enough. That's good. And so we, we see, if we look at the candidates in Scripture, and I, and I always kind of look at this, and sometimes I, I mirror it up against what we celebrate in the church today, it seems that the people that God chose may not make the cut in the body of Christ today in the church. I'm concerned about that as a leader sometimes. You know, you know I love college football. I love, love, I love football, period. You guys know that. But as they're looking at recruits, you know, for instance, in the NFL, from, from their college career, they rate them by stars, a five-star five athlete, a four-star athlete, a three-star recruit. And they base it on a lot of things. They base it on, on what they do, what they call the combine, where they go through all these strength tests and speed tests and stuff. And so they get scores on that. They base it on the films that they watch the athlete in or what they achieved in at least like tackles or, or passes caught in their, college, in their college career. But it doesn't measure everything. For instance, it doesn't measure instinct for the game. When I played college football, there were great athletes that had no instinct for football. They, did, they, they were strong, they were fast, but in essence, they were kind of football stupid. And they didn't have instinct. They always ran where the ball was, not where the ball's going. Okay? They just had a way of, of not really performing to the top of what their skill level says that they could. There's more to an athlete than just his statistics. That's what I'm saying. There's more, many things to a leader, a Christian, or someone God uses, much more than talent or uniqueness. There's other qualities that God is looking at. Even in sports, sometimes it's not that you have the best players, you have the right players. Right. It's the right players. And then sometimes we have great athletes that can't play with others. Okay, they can't play in a team. In the NFL, they're being traded every season because everyone gets, gets rid of them. They're just a high-maintenance type of a person. So it doesn't, doesn't measure everything. But we tend in our culture to always look at the, the, the elite, the cream, the best. And, and why is this? Why... Why celebrities in our culture? Why, why is that so important to us? You know, we, we turn on the, the Good Morning America or CBS Today or something on as we're kind of getting ready to go out of the house in the morning just to pick up the news. And one of our disappointments lately, you know, and you can say, well, Bob, I, we don't even trust their news. Okay, I'm not even going to get into that. It's just that sometimes we're not doing the news. They're talking about celebrities all the time. All the time, you know, you know, so-and-so got pregnant and so-and-so, you know, was in the hospital for a day. Why, why, why aren't we talking about common people in the hospital today or common person getting pregnant? It's always, these guys are so fascinating. They got pregnant. A lot of people get pregnant. 
Why, why is their pregnancy so special? Or they, they went on a, you know, they just got married, they went to the Bahamas. Well, a lot of people go to the Bahamas on their honeymoon. Why, why is their honeymoon so, so special? I think there's reasons why that. One is because of idolatry. Now, one of the arguments for the existence of God is called the ontological argument for the existence of God. In other words, man is instinctively a worshiper. And if we're not worshiping God, we find something else to worship. And what we're doing is we're worshiping celebrities. Well, why would we worship celebrities? Well, because they seem more interesting and happier than we are. You know, look at our life. It's dull. Look at what they did, the lights and the red carpet, and they did this and they did that, and they, that trophy, that achievement, the fanfare, the confetti, okay? I got to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and make my lunch, and I got to get on the freeway at 6, and I got to be on the construction site at 7. I get off at 4. I drive back at 5, and I have to pick up my son, take him to Little League practice, and we eat some hot dogs we get at Circle K. We get him back home and watch a sitcom and fall asleep at 8 o'clock at night. Doesn't seem to be as, as, as fun as, as the person who's got all the glitter and gets the ESPY awards or gets the Oscar, or gets the Grammy or the Dove or whatever it might be. They seem happier or more interesting than us. We secretly want to be famous and we secretly want to be known. You know, the Bible says that there are three things that will never inherit the kingdom of God. One is the lust of the eyes. The other is the lust of the flesh. But the third is the pride of life. It's the three G's. You got to stay away from the gold. You got to stay away from the girls. And you got to stay away from the glory. We tend to want to be famous. We want to be known. But what, what, what if we're just known to God? I've had the great honor of ministering to the poorest sections of the Church of Jesus globally, the poorest Christians, the most unknown Christians in places around the world. A lot of people don't even know the countries that they're in. But yet they move in powerful signs and wonders and miracles and things that God does through them and their stories are just often, they have a front page story in American culture. But they are known to God. I love the tomb of the unknown soldier at Arlington when I go to Washington, D.C. I, I always like to go to Arlington just to go to the tomb of the unknown soldier. And it says this it's on the epitaph of this particular tomb. It says, here rests in honored glory an American soldier known but to God. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing on your tombstone or my tombstone? Here lies a servant of Jesus, a soldier of the army of God, known only but to God. See, well, that's what we're going to see in that day. There's going to be a lot of lasts that are first. And a lot of firsts that are lasts. We, we, we want to somehow take part in their fame. You know, a lot of parents do this. They want to make their kids, you know, the gold medalist ice skater. Or, you know, they want to make sure they get to the pros or they get their music career off the ground. They live their life through their child's accomplishments. And uh, My kids have done really well, and I release them to do that, but I got my own life to begin still live. We're not, Sue and I are not just running around just being their fans and we just stop doing. We're here to fulfill what God wants us to do. We want to, we want to be like them. We, you know, we, we're secretly, we're, we're wanting people to chant our name. We're secretly sometimes want to be on the cover of a magazine or be on TV. Just being known by God somehow isn't enough. Or we bought into what culture values.
values. What is culture value? There's, there's another question. Well, here's what culture values. It, it values beauty. Now, what's interesting is that someone like Kim Kardashian, for instance, has become the poster woman in our culture for what is beautiful. But if you look at, and you can study this yourself, what was beautiful 100 years ago is not beautiful today. And what is beautiful today would not be beautiful 100 years ago. And you look at every ancient culture in Western civilization, and beauty was redefined over and over and over and over and over and again. In other words, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. But when we just kind of put it up there, that's the standard. But it varies from culture to culture. Or fitness. We got, in our country, we got fat phobia. I want to just, I want to rejoice today with all of you who are part of me who are overweight. Now, if you look at my medical chart, and if you look at my height, my weight, they would label me obese. Even though my pulse is like 60 and below, even though I can outlift most 30-year-olds, although I can exercise and breathe really hard, double and almost triple my heartbeat and exercise, they would call me obese. So lately, my, my doctor, excuse me, excuse me, carpet, but by... <laughs> My, my doctor, I, I met my new doctor, and she's, she's, she's a good, good doctor. It was a great connection. And, of course, they weighed me, and she put me in obese category. And I said, listen, I, I get kind of offended when I get labeled in the obese column. Because if you took my BMI, I'd probably be somewhere between 18 and 20% body fat right now. I'm not in the best shape, but it gave me three weeks so I could cut 5% of that off down. But you keep putting me in obese category. Well, that's just the way it is, Bob. Just don't worry about it. So I did, they had me do a blood panel. They came back on my blood panel, and I had my scores on my blood panel were just perfect off the chart. And the first thing she said to me, I'm taking you off the obese category. <laughs> you know, who says that you gotta weigh this much at this height, and you gotta have this much, you know, you know, um, you know fat and, or no fat or, or whatever? It's, it's function. How do you function? How do you breathe? Your health, what you eat. Now, yeah, less weight is always probably a lot better than more weight, but we, everyone's walking around thinking their life has you know, come to an end because they're not as skinny as some model that'll probably die out of malnutrition anyway. <laughs> or how about productivity? You grew, grew a business, developed a program, invented something, amassed wealth, you know? You know why we, we love those things? Because we, we kind of strut around with a sense of significance. It doesn't seem as exciting that I'm on a construction crew or I work as a, a lineman for PUD. It just doesn't seem, you know, I worked for that company for 30 years and retired, and, and that's what I did. It's just not as significant as somebody just really just grew something. And, you know, they're famous for what they produce. Or we tend to... Really just look at wealth. Very, very interesting about wealth. I found that people that have money are just as stressed out about money as someone that doesn't have money. I find that everybody's stressed out about money. You know, have you ever said, if we only had more money? What we need in our personal lives and what we need in the church is not more money. We just need a real close relationship with Jesus to make sure we're doing his will. I'll talk about this, the second half of this. That's what the whole manna lesson is. It's about manna wasn't the provision. God was. 
or experiences. You know, man, someday I want to see. So we think, oh, man, they made it to that spot. I've always wanted to go to that spot. You know what you get when you go to that spot? Usually you get a bunch of people trying to sell you souvenirs. Oh, you see some beautiful mountainscape and you know some great national park, and I want to go there. And then you get there, and you're eaten alive by mosquitoes. Bees sting the daylights out of you. We, we camp there, and you, we were up all night because it was 30 degrees and below during the night, and you didn't have the right equipment. But boy, did we ever have a good time looking at that glacier. Because you have frostbite, and you lost two of your fingers. Or talent. You know, it's kind of interesting. We're just adverse to average. We really are. You know, I, I actually look at it as a gift, the fact that I didn't get taller. When I was in college football, I was mocked for my height. I was five, four or five inches shorter than my position should have been. And uh, I'll never forget, we were playing against Portland State. And uh, I came out on the field the first part of the second quarter as a nose guard. And the guard came up to the center of Portland State's offense, and he looked at me. He looked at his other guard, and he said, they got a midget on this team. (laughs) They got a midget. Okay. So I used to go through stuff like that. We'd be on the team bus. We went by like a tree farm with little seedlings, and one guy stood up and said, there's Bob McGregor's forest. Okay. I was average. I was average speed, average weight, and average strength, and average skill. But it did something to me. There was thing, other things because of that that I did to compensate that actually moved me forward as an effective player. And so I find sometimes that we, over, we, we, we look at talent to such a degree, we forget the greatness that can be in common people. And of course, we think fame, fame to be known. I'd rather just be known to God. Yeah. You know, I think that's why things like prophetic assembly and hearing the gift of prophecy, when someone sees somebody he's never met before and they begin to describe their prayers, their journey, and their path, and that God has keenly been aware of your cries, your journey, your paths. It's just so endearing that the God of the universe cares about me or you. You know, God has a different value system, and I'll just bring it to a close here today, and we're going to move forward from here. What's God's value system? It's three things. First is this, that God looks at the heart. When Samuel came to anoint the sons of Jesse to see who was going to be the king, you know, David was the last pick. You know, one thing you need to understand something is that in, in those days, in that culture, if you're like the you're not the firstborn son, you're almost nothing. And if you're the seventhborn son, you're really nothing. So it wasn't just that David was younger, it was that he was the bottom of the barrel. And, and he wasn't even, I'll tell you how bad it was. His father did not even consider him a candidate for even Samuel to look at. And so Samuel says, something is really wrong here. Gone through all these sons, and not him, not him, not him, not him, not him. Do you have any other boys? Yeah, there's one. <laughs> He's a joke. One. He's out in the back keeping 
keeping care of the sheep. Now, if you're a shepherd in those days, that's not a compliment either. It was the lowest job in the family. Oh, you gave it, you gave it, it was a pecking order. You gave it to the next guy down. It wasn't like a compliment. I'm a pastor. Well, that's not a compliment. You're the grunt of the kingdom of God. Shepherding's grunt work. And so God looks at the heart. Of course, God said to Samuel, as he's looking at, of course, David's oldest brother, do not consider his appearance or his height. That's what Saul was. Saul was a king that looked like all the other kings around them, and that's what they wanted. You know, God actually prophesied about kings coming out of Abraham's lineage in in Genesis. They wanted a king that looked like the guys in the other nations. We want tall and handsome. Come on, we got Saul. That's what they wanted. They wanted to look like other nations. David didn't look like other nations. He was the seventh son. He was not a considered. He wasn't even the race. God's rejected, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. What's their bent towards me, God asks. What's their hunger for me? What's their response to me? What's their love for my people? Dick Iverson told me when I was 27 years old, he said, what is your goal? I said, I want to, one day I'm going to leave here and I'm going to plant a church and I'm going to be a pastor. He said to me, he didn't say son, but it was kind of one of those things, son, you'll you'll be ready to pastor when you leave this church with tears in your eyes because it'll break your, you'll love these people so much, it'll break your heart to leave them and only then will you be equipped and ready and qualified to pastor the church of Jesus. God looks at the heart. Second thing God looks at, he looks for dependence. This is what the Lord says, Jeremiah. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. Isn't that interesting? When I look to the strength of my own human abilities, my heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. Have you ever been in the desert? Of course, the Joneses here are from Yuma. Nothing grows. There's nothing alive. They're sustained by the supernatural providence of heaven. That's the only way they breathe and live. They will not, they will not see prosperity when it comes, isn't it? They will not see. Those who trust themselves will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert. Look at the metaphoric language here. Dry, non-productive, no life, and a salt land where no one lives, no life. But blessed is the one, not who trusts in their abilities, but who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water, sends out its roots by the stream. Come on, this is refreshing language. This is life language. This is productivity language. This is success language. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. 
always green. You're always productive. You always have life. You always have provision. It has no worries in a year of drought. It never fails to bear fruit. Dependence. I mean, dependence is where it's at. The fallen nature wants to be autonomous. In, our, in ourselves, in our fallen human nature, what happened in Genesis 3 when man said, we're going to eat of the tree, what took place was that man was saying, we're going to be our own boss, therefore we're going to be our own provider, we're going to be our own builders, we're going to be our own protectors, we're going to be our own self-sufficient ones, we're going to do it ourselves, we're going to be on our own. And because man became that way, man became completely self-sufficient. Zero trust and zero dependence on God. That's why, give you a little hint of my seminar, we have a thing called anxiety. Because when it's your stuff and you're the provider and it's up to you, you only have yourself to trust. So your first go-to is to worry or to be compulsive or a control freak because it, it stops with you, not God. God wants us to live completely dependent on him. Look at the way he whittled down Gideon's army. I mean, it's too many. They get down to this much. Still too many. Take down this much. Still too many. He took them down 30,000 to 300. I want you not partially dependent on me, Gideon. I want you completely dependent upon me, Gideon. See, this is why even in the church, when we tell people, just give yourself to your strengths, it's got a danger to it. Because if you give yourself to your strengths, you're going to live by your instincts. You're not going to live by prayer. I can do it. This is what I do. Come on, this, this is how I grew. This is where I, how I move. This is how I do things. This is who I am. This is how God's called me. Where's the prayer? Where's the fasting? Where's the hunger for God? Where's the dark night of the soul where, God, I need your intervention? I am really encouraged that we're giving Pete and Tamar a church that has a strong savings account and we're in a great healthy place as a church. I do remember times when I've sat right here and my team sat in that first row and we're going to fast all day today because I have no money to pay you. You know, what happened? God came through. Why? Because we were dependent upon him. Not that, that Pete won't be dependent on God because we have a savings account. It's just that sometimes the answer is God, not what you got in the bank. God wants us dependent. And lastly, God looks for weakness. What do you mean? God looks for weakness. Well, look at what Paul said. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. This is the non-compliment of why we're here today. We're not here because God thought we were smart. Not many. Now, notice it didn't say not any. So I thank God for a few sharp people in the church. I'm not one of them. Not many were influential. Isn't it interesting? The big buzzword today is I'm an influencer. I got a million followers on YouTube. I'm an influencer. Not many. Not many were of noble birth. But God... Here's his team. This is, this is his draft. 
He kind of went after one-star athletes. But God, he chose the foolish things of the world. Now, foolish in this context means not real smart. To shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world. To shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world. Not only the lowly things, but Paul has this digression in here. The despised things. Come on, I need some despised people that I could work through. Well, how about this guy? No, he's not despised enough. I need someone who's really despised. The things that are not. I need something that's like, they're, not, they're so insignificant, it's like they don't exist. To nullify the things that are. So that no one may boast before him. My clothes. Why does God work through weakness and human limitation? Why does he limit me? Why does he limit you, either by birth or by circumstances? Why does he limit us? And it's pretty simple, so he can receive the glory. Amen. John Piper says, God's glory is this, God going public. God going public. God wants to go public through you. Though someone might say, him? Her? That group? Those people? That city? That nation? That place? That place? I'm going to tell you right now, the power and the influence of Christianity is shifting from the United States to other parts of the world. And God may take an insignificant nation but raise up the most powerful church to model for the world what it is to be a follower of Jesus. And people will look and say, that nation? That church in that place? Because God wants to go public. He doesn't want me to get the credit. He doesn't want you to get the credit. He wants the soul glory. Let's stand to our feet. Father, we have celebrated so much today. We have celebrated a faithful member of our church, my own daughter, her life here and her journey and the great next chapter of her life as she makes a covenant with Solomon here on Thursday and moves forward into what you have for them. We've celebrated community. We've celebrated the birthing of a church in Tacoma. The advancement of the kingdom of God, the multiplication of disciples and followers and churches and the extension of the kingdom. And Lord, through it all, Lord, you want to get the glory. You build the house. You watch the city. You work mightily. We plant, we water, but God, you're the one who is the increaser. You bring the harvest. You bring the increase. Lord, we're, our job is to submit and serve, submit and obey, and your job is to glorify yourself and bring forth the fruit. We thank you that, Lord, you're going to make us a people that depend upon you. We will not covet what other people have. We will not be jealous of what other people are known. We will be people that find our identity in Christ and Christ alone. And we want to be known to you, Lord. We want to be pleasing to you. And through that, we want you to be able to do miracles that you want to do because of the people submitted to you. In Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. Amen. Amen.